trying not to be intimidated by early music and overcoming that intimidation. An interview with Dr. Carol Ann Buff, professor at Indiana University, and a composer profile on Guillaume Dufay. This is Early Music Monday. We've all been there. We've all met people that have been really intimidating for one reason or another, whether they whether we perceive them as being smarter or prettier or more talented or more well-connected or more wealthy or fill in the blank. I mean, when I first met my wife, Liz, she scared the crap out of me. And she kind of still does sometimes because I just think she's way above me. But that's another story for another day. But when we approach early music, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it might be. Even for me, sometimes I still get caught in the trap of, oh, I don't know, am I doing this right? Maybe I shouldn't do this piece because it has to be completely accurate and it has to be perfect and all this stuff. And something that Dr. Buff and I discuss a little bit more at length in the interview is about how a generation ago, perhaps, early music has been kind of something that's been perceived as a museum piece or museum art where, cool, we discovered it, we make a definitive recording, and then we leave it, and that's it, just so we can have it to study some more. Or when we're going through our music lit classes and we have it. But early music can really be taken out of the museum and made into a living work of art as, you know, a genre, a time period as a whole, really. I'm not going to talk too long about it because, again, Dr. Buff and I talk about it at length, about how to overcome that, you know. You just do a quick Google search on something, get a couple of reference books, look up choral journal articles. You can take just 10, 15 minutes to look something up and be more knowledgeable about an early music piece or an early music composer Even doing this podcast, I am terrified that there are early music scholars out there who are judging every word I say, especially because some of the research I do, I just look up, I have a couple of books that I reference often, uh, Music in the Renaissance and Choral Repertoire and a couple of choral journal entries and CPDL, and realizing that everybody else is kind of in the same boat of just trying to make a living doing the art that they love. And early music is no exception. So when you're approaching as an audience member, as a singer, as a conductor, as a historian, a piece of music that you're unfamiliar with, particularly early music, there's just a couple of quick things you can do to familiarize yourself with it. You know, check out this book, Renaissance Music by Alan Atlas. It's awesome. Check out Choral Repertoire by Dennis Schrock. That book is amazing. It's like an encyclopedia of choral music and, you know, gives a really brief bio and some pieces of music that are most well-known by almost every composer you could think of of choral music throughout history, starting from the medieval time and going all the way up to contemporary. 
And then don't let the unfamiliar intimidate you because you don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the prettiest. You don't have to be the most well-rounded. You don't have to be the most athletic. You don't have to be have the perfect gesture. All we're trying to do is to make those within our sphere of influence a little bit better because they came to our concert or because they listened to us speak once or whatever. And however big that sphere of influence is, that's awesome. So, I don't, and it's hard to just, cool, I'm just going to not be intimidated. <laughs> it's not, that's not how it works. But, again, I think that there are perspectives that we can have a paradigm shift with regards to how we view early music that will help us kind of take down that, those walls and take early music off the pedestal. Um, and so I'm just going to let Dr. Buff kind of tell us some of the things and talk. And as, as you listen to her speak, you're going to hear the passion and how relatable she is about this music. And you realize that, okay, I can, I can approach that. I can, I can understand that metaphor. I can understand those things. And it kind of takes down those barriers a little bit. So we'll turn now to our interview with Dr. Carol Ann Buff. Before we get started, though, Dr. Buff is an assistant professor in the Choral Conducting Program at Indiana University. And she kind of specializes there with historical performance and early music. So she did her dissertation on Chaconia, uh, who is kind of a generation before Guillaume Dufay, who we're, her and I will talk about, and that's who our composer profile is. And she worked very closely with her mentor, who is a Dufay scholar. So she has a wealth of knowledge about early music, medieval music in particular, and she's participated in ensembles throughout her career, and continues to conduct ensembles there at Indiana University. Dr. Buff, there's so many questions that I want to ask you. And so <laughs> <laughs> we, we might have to do two or three of these in, in the span of uh, several months or something, because I Sounds just, awesome. I think that, well, to start with, people like me who are kind of more in the performance heavy realm as opposed yeah. to maybe the research or academic heavy realm are really intimidated when we come to someone like you who is an expert in a, in a field or even a piece of music that's historical because there is this kind of pedestal that we put early music on. What would you say, what do you say to start to start this whole interview to, to that to kind of like quell those fears of intimidation of approaching the music and or, you know, scholars? Absolutely. I think that's a really good way to start off. And I, I will just say that um, one of the issues obviously is just, you know, familiarity and that it's it's one of those things that's like once you get into it, it's just like, oh, yeah, this totally makes sense to me. But it's the same with any other repertoire. I mean, imagine, right, you know, the first time um, 
that you, you know, hear an opera or see an opera and, and it's just really mind blowing when it's like, oh, wow, all of this stuff can kind of all go together. And wow, these people sing for three hours and they don't get yeah. tired. And how does that work? Or, you know, have you seen those videos recently of the, the two brothers that like the first time hearing like old, like rock and roll songs? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. But, like they were listening to like Peter Gabriel or something and like, yeah. whoa, that drum backbeat. And they're just all excited yeah. and they're totally getting down. And it's, it is, it's like that. It's like, wow, what is this? And how does this make it tick? Yeah. And early music is, is one of those things. Cause I had that experience too. Like the first time I kind of put the, the two parts together and said, Hey, yeah, that thing is this thing I'm studying in music history. Yeah. And it's like, I want to do that. And that's really, really cool. But I will say, yeah, it is intimidating because it means you have to learn um, a whole kind of different language of music. Um, and it's not just style, but like some of the notation is really different. Sometimes it's a little inaccessible because it's been really, um, it's been relegated to an academic discipline. So, you know, you don't find like octavo scores of Dufay out there well maybe you could but they're very few and far between right. and so if you want to go look at the music in a modern transcription you have to go to like the so-called quote-unquote monuments of music right <laughs> and you have to go and like go look at like a complete works edition and those are meant to be scholarly those are meant right. to be like oh what does the score look like the original manuscript look like what does you know what am I doing what decisions am I making as an academic to study this music but not necessarily perform it. And so I think that there is a certain barrier that's there that one must overcome before you even get there. Yeah. And I think you just mentioned that's, that's maybe just the first step then is even just finding recordings and listening. Like, yeah. hey, it's still a performance art. It's still a performance art. So how do we bridge that gap? And, and, you know, maybe that's a, a separate episode that we could have. <laughs> but I'm sure that you, it, being in the unique position that you are, I feel in, in terms of that you have ensembles that you're in front of and you have these performance students, but you're also in this academic realm. I'm sure you have all kinds of tools of how you would bridge that gap. But it's very funny. One of the hardest things is just uh, um, I kind of I always talk about like the sell, right? You know, you have to go in and kind of sell it yeah. before they're listening. Because you know, again, we have students who are, who are coming from all over. They are they have all sorts of different backgrounds. Some of whom are um, really interested in early music, or maybe have an inkling that they like it. Maybe they've sung some Palestrina or some even maybe sure. some earlier stuff in or Bird William Bird in church services, but they've never like encountered anything as early as I do. And it's like for them. It's, I really have to kind of go in and say, okay, here's this thing and here's how it works and let's just kind of try it out. But there's like a lot of anxiety initially um, about like, well, you know, isn't there a way to do this? Isn't there like some specialized technique I need to have or anything like that? And I, I'm absolutely not of that opinion, but that's the, certainly the impression that it, that it comes from. Yeah. Well, and that's even super fascinating of how do you sing it? Just yeah. like you would, like, like you would, <laughs> like I had a, um, as I mentioned, when we had our conversation a couple weeks ago, I did an interview with Scott Metcalf of the Blue Heron. And he's like, they were just as practical as we are. Like, not this, if they had to make an adjustment and they had no altos, they would write a piece for no altos. Like, it, it doesn't have to be this, like, sacred thing that we absolutely we yeah it's really fascinating actually think about even um in terms of like performance practice like you you kind of say well and, and performance practice is just a, a fancy way of saying 
well, what do you do, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. So let's say, you know, you only have one singer, but, oh, there's a really great guy who plays a trumpet over there and maybe he can, you know, kind of do something. Oh, and I would get this recorder player. And, oh, there's a, a guy who plays lute and he kind of strums a lot, but maybe he can pluck out one of the the parts or something like that. And so you can, you can imagine that there's a sort of a much more organic way yeah. of thinking about this music that hasn't, this is the other part of it, right? You can kind of say, well, we don't want to approach early music because well, it's kind of somehow or another separated from us. It's because early music has been made into a kind of a museum piece. Like yeah. we want to, we want to ossify these 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 objects, right? We want to put right. them in the museum, and the same way that you know you walk past a painting in a museum and you kind of stop and you look at it for a moment and then you move along. You could come back to that painting three months later, three years later, thirty years later, and it's still the same. Yeah. With music, that's not true at all. And in fact, if anything, the only way it's manifest if someone performs it. So why not take the opportunity to kind of like experiment and play around and just like kind of get your feet wet and make it real for yourself. And that, that to me is like the ultimate goal, I think, of, of early music of like kind of why we do it, why we talk about it. It's just like, it's got to be done in order for it to exist at all. Well, and that, that's such a great metaphor. I, I was even talking to my mentor, Dr. Crane, about um, facilities. And he's like, I was at this really like low socioeconomic high school on a tour in, in California. And they sang Palestrina better than any high school I'd ever seen. Because it didn't matter. They didn't need anything. It's just they worked with what they had and they just went for it and i was like just yeah. the human voice just, amazing isn't it you work it's, with what you have and you, yeah. you create it new each time so i think that's really a great metaphor yeah so so following up on that then how did you come to spend so much of your time working with dufai well, I mean, there's there's kind of a long story there, and there's a, a, a bit more direct story. And I think the, the longer story is basically that I had a, a, a career, I think like many people do when they're, they're interested in music. I sang in a church choir growing up, and I sang in my junior high school and my high school um, choral programs, which were both, by the way, fantastic. I mean, just absolutely a miracle in California in the yeah. 70s and 80s when they were really cutting back on music sure. and arts programs. I was so lucky. We had, pe- we had yeah. people that really cared about it. So loved singing. I got to college, and I didn't have that same experience. First of all, I encountered for the first time really um aggressive uh, misogyny uh right. like basically women aren't allowed to be conductors which was kind of a hard yeah. thing for me to hear and it seems impo- impossible to to even pers- to understand now it's but it was like i very much had a a choir director who was just like nope i don't want to talk to you at all <laughs> so it's just mind-blowing right and so um uh but i had a really really good voice teacher who said you know the foundation for a really good voice is first of all that you find your authentic voice so you've Mm got to be true to who you are and you've got to sing you've got to sing the way that you sing and you don't have to be an opera singer in order to be a professional singer you can sing contemporary music you can sing early music you can sing in a choir or you can sing yeah. in uh you know uh, any sort of variety of ensembles chamber music or, you know go find your composing friends go find all these people that right. want to do these things and i was like that's pretty cool so she yeah. threw a bunch of repertoire at me and i kind of swam around for a while in that and i uh, at a studio recital 
I think I probably like something Italian and probably something, you know, Schubert-y or something sure, like that. Sure. <laughs> and um, this uh, music history professor walked up to me and he said, and he was, he's from Venezuela. And so, of course, he has this very funny accent. And he yeah, says, yeah. ah, yes, my little chicken. Okay, I want you to come and sing in my, my cappella. And I'm like, okay, sure. And he says, yeah. I want you to sing a solo in the musicalis section of uh, Heinrich Schutz. And I was like, uh, blah, 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 uh, blah, 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 blah. I had no idea what on earth he said. But I, yeah, I said, yes, why not? Yeah. Um, and uh, saying yes is a really good thing sometimes, like, you know, just to say, uh, I've got this opportunity, don't be frightened of it. And, um, and so I sang in this beautiful, you know, 17th century concerted, you know, beautiful, like with historic instruments, all these things. But I had no idea what I was doing. It was just like, sure. this is the coolest piece ever. And by the way, it still is like one of my all-time favorite pieces. So Which piece is it by piece? It's, it's, it's uh, Heinrich Schutz, S-C-H-U-U with an umlaut, T-Z. Uh, and uh, Heinrich Schutz wrote a piece called Musicalicious, so musical exequian, which means basically um, like funeral music. Oh, sure. And it was uh, it's a series of motets. Some of them are solo and some of them are choral that are all linked together. That was for a 17th century nobleman. Oh, okay. And it is utterly yeah. Bored. Shoots is awesome. He's so awesome. beautiful. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and um, and you can see actually, you know, when Brahms writes his German Requiem, you uh, one has to wonder if he maybe was kind of hearing a little mm -hmm. bit about those new publications of Schutz that were being cool. created in the late 19th century, because it's th this piece is just amazing. And every, everything I've, I've ever heard by Heinrich Schutz is yeah. fantastic yeah. so here's this you know little this professor who's walked up to me a little you know i don't know i was 18 19 years old right right and i was like okay sure let's let's do it little did i know that this guy well first of all he was he threw everything he could at us um we did um uh monteverdi sorfeo in a concert version which i sang some some roles in it was really great um we sang uh, cristobal morales who's a wonderful renaissance compose spanish renaissance composer um we did some we did beneventin chant uh like a whole whole entire service for easter morning um which like the chant from benevento is unlike any other chant you've ever heard it's not like the old roman chant or like kind of the traditional latin chant that we think of today um but beautiful beautiful melodies that like no one else i think in anywhere on the planet was singing this at that time that's so cool it turns out this professor is the expert on guillaume dufay um, and his name, his name was Alejandro Planchart. Um, uh, very sadly, uh, he passed away just, just over a year ago. Um, but a, he was a dear friend of mine, uh, my, you know, not only my professor, but my mentor and has been my mentor, all the different kind of weird paths I've taken in my life. I just have to say, just as an aside, I think now that I'm of, of an age, I can say, I don't think anyone takes a straight path in life. Yeah. Like I think we kind of always get to something and there's a moment where we have to say, okay, I'm going to go this way or that way or that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you choose it and it's like, yeah, there's a bunch of what ifs, but you know what? We, we just land where we need to be. Yeah. That's and, um, that's and that's, and then he was there at every step of the way. In fact, and, and probably the, like the, when, after college when like the whole earth kind of opened up and um the ground dropped out from underneath me and i fell into a really really big pit of my own making by the way but totally a big hot mess right. he was there at the end of that as i was kind of like crawling out again and he said yeah hey you know do you like this early music thing because you could do it 
And I said, how do I do it? And yeah. he said, well, um, you know, remember that ensemble that you really liked? It's called um, Ensemble Project Ars Nova. Uh, they are a really wonderful group. They do 14th century music. Here go, here's a CD, go listen to them. And it was um, the CD of Ars Magis Subtilior. It was like oh, all yeah. of this late 14th century, yeah. super complicated mannerist style yeah. music. Uh, and my mind was just absolutely, I was like, this is even crazier than anything we did in Capella, right? So, right, <laughs> and it turned out they were in residence at a, a, a little tiny conservatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Langis School of Music. Oh, wow. And at that point, I said, I, I, I could, oh, they offer a degree, a master's degree in early music performance. Huh, this is interesting. And so I went to Langis and kind of threw myself into early music. So as I say, I had this little kind of inkling that something was really cool going on by working with this professor in Dufay, who worked on Dufay. Yeah. And then I met two other people who were just as excited about early music as I was. And um, they became my great dear colleagues and dear friends. Um, so a soprano and a tenor. And we put together our own little ensemble called Liber Unusualis, oh, um, you know, kind of playing off, you know, the Latin chant book right <laughs> and um we had a we had a really good run of it we uh, had a, we were um the winner of a young artist competition in in antwerp the laus polyphene um uh, festival in um in belgium and uh from that we got a nice recording we made our own recording we self-produced a recording of guillaume de Machaut. um and we sang everything we could anything in three voices so it meant uh Machaut, uh, Johannes Chaconia, another really fabulous early 15th century composer who I adore, um, some Dufay, um, just any, as a, anything we could get our hands on that worked for three voices, we sang it. Yeah, right. that's awesome. And so, you know, and so that was my kind of early music career. I did that for about, I don't know, 13 years or so. And then um, I said, huh, I, um, I'm doing so much work. And I'm looking at manuscripts and I'm trying to transcribe them and I'm doing all this research on the music of the early 15th century. Here's another path to take. Yeah. And someone I talked to said, oh, well, you know, why don't you think about getting a PhD? And I said, I don't know. I never really thought I would do that. Sure. And so I applied kind of all over the place and um, uh, I ended up going to Princeton University and got a PhD wow. in uh, musicology. Um, I didn't only study Dufay while I was there. In fact, uh, my, my dissertation is actually on Johannes Chaconia. So it's a just just one generation or so before Dufay, but was a huge influence uh, on on the early music, uh, early works of Dufay. So, um, so there's obviously some connections there and I've a big chunk of the dissertation that was a kind of like what were the influences and then I wrote an article kind of based on that same similar research um, for a book in honor of Alejandro Planchart so uh, there's a chapter there on Dufay and musical style great and uh, and so it's, it's kind of like that's what it's been so the PhD yeah. was just a kind of a it was a little tough because I had to make a decision between how much performing I was going to do and how much kind of academic work I was going to do. Um, right. And so, you know, I really pulled back on, on performance. I haven't done as much as I would love to um, right. do. And I keep on saying, Oh, I'll do it. You know, when I get settled right. and it's like, yeah, well, you know, never really just end. <laughs> I still have homework to do. Well, um, it's actually really interesting. I have a really good friend who I actually did an interview for one of these episodes who is doing her 
doctorate in musicology from Princeton right now. Oh, fantastic. She did her undergrad in choral ed. And so she, she literally just quoted you of, I don't get to do as much performing as I'd like, but I will one day. She said the exact same thing as she's got this stack of books next to her. And I'm just like, it must be a thing that musicologists battle. But that's so profound to me because I, the perception from, in my music in the Renaissance class at BYU, in my master's degree was, there was four of us was all two of them were the two musicology students. And then two of us were the choral conducting grads who needed our elective. So we just assumed that, and one of them wasn't really a performer. He really was just much more of the academics. So I Mm -hmm. think that we have this kind of false impression that there's not much emphasis in performance or that musicologists don't understand performance and and we don't understand them. And there's this divide that I don't think has to be there sometimes. Yeah. I mean, this is like you that do performance really well and love it. (laughs) Well, and I will tell you that I I think that I wouldn't be the musicologist I am without this input that I got from being a performer. I I, I do most of the work that I do is actually, um, I would call it more analytical in that um, I, you know, I'm not, I am looking at archives, but I'm not like digging through like pay records, for instance. Like right. some some musicologists do that, by the way. They right. like and they're they oh my gosh, I you know <laughs> I bow to them, right? They right. um they they go through. In fact, one of one of my favorite stories of Alejandro Planchard is he went to Cambrai one summer and he came back and he's like, oh, la, 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 I found Dufy's pillows. And I'm like, what <laughs> on earth are you talking about? <laughs> It turns out that um, in one of the pay records, we know where Dufay was because his pillows were embroidered with the coat of arms at, of the court where he was working. And it's and just like, oh my gosh, you know, how how little information can kind of really guide us about information we, we otherwise wouldn't know. Oh, the other thing he found out, by the way, is that Dufay owned a waffle iron, which I think is kind of cool. That is right? you know? Yeah. I mean, Dufay's waffles, like what a great restaurant, right? <laughs> but uh, but what I'm saying is is that there are musicologists who are kind of like, you know, they dig in the archives and they read and they write and they think profoundly. Yeah. Um, but I think that the work that I've been doing has, has utterly been informed by my understanding of how the music sounds and how the music works. Um, I, I want to look at the scores. I want to look at the original um, uh, manuscripts because they inform how I understand the, <clears throat> the music works. Yeah. And, and that think- to me is super, super important. Like that I can hear what that I can, I can imagine what this feels uh, yeah. to like to sing. And I think that that's a really, really important aspect of my distinctive way of doing musicology um and i i think it's definitely i think it's really important i think it's good to have both those skills i do too and i think from my perspective who am more on the performance side i do the same thing in reverse of how how this works how these lines work how they thought about it when they composed totally influences how i perform it if i'm doing a whitaker piece he is definitely thinking vertically but but these Renaissance people were not so exactly so they influence our performance that way with yeah. that kind of influence and so absolutely where most performers don't really like doing research I love it that's <laughs> where we can kind of bridge the gap on. right and to be fair to be fair right and the reason I say that I don't perform as much as I do is because well 
the task of performing, you know, especially if you're going to be a, you know, a recording right. artist or anything, you have to spend time on your instrument. You have to spend time really perfecting that. And, you know, I may not have that time anymore, but I will tell you what, I am doing that same thing on the other end. Yeah. And so I think I could basically say to someone, okay, hey, you're a performer. Let me help you get to a place where you don't have to do that grunt work. And I can come in and talk to you about like, okay, what's going on here? Why is this important? That's what I do in my classes all the time. Yeah. I'm teaching my conducting students like how to look at a score and say, okay, well, what should I be looking for here? Yeah. Uh, what makes this tick? And to be able to articulate that because you have to, when you stand up in front of choir, you yeah. have to be able to, to say, to the choir, oh yeah, hey tenors, don't do this here because there's right. this thing that's happening. Or sopranos, I really want you to add this bit here because I know that in another moment you're going to have a, a a thing that's going to happen. And if you don't prepare it here, you're going to have to prepare. I mean, like these are all these things. It's like, or you know, foray didn't intend it to be this way. Or right. You know, oh, yeah. I know that's not the way they would have done it in the 14th century, but we're going to do it this way because we have an audience and they're going to really enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So these are the decisions that, that I think the educated decision that needs to be made that are mutually beneficial, um, that you can't be a, a singer yeah. or a conductor without the kind of background and knowledge. And I can't be, as I say, the sort of musicologist I am without kind of knowing how all of this music really works and how this really ticks. And that's, that to me is just like, that's where I'm at and that's my philosophy, but yeah, I think it's great. super good. And that's what, <laughs> well, and it creates room too for collaborative relationships. And I think that my, I'm of the philosophy that uh, I like those, I, the group is smarter than me. So you know right yeah we, we really can improve the art the more we kind of have these conversations and think about things that way so i think that's fantastic yeah. i mean heck you wouldn't you wouldn't hire a singer that's not better than you right because you're worried about them being bad i mean come on right. you know yeah. <laughs> you're going to get the best you can and the the and and the best you can and the, not only that but you're going to get the most multifaceted person too because they're going to have a wealth of information about and it's not just music history because you know that that's easy to say musicology is just music history right. but it's like it's everything it's literature it's understanding art and it's understanding art I mean, which i love by the way you know art and architecture and right. um you know understanding culture and understanding you know who the people were and where they were to me just makes it that much richer right. when you go and you have a story to tell in your eyes when you're performing yeah which that's all. the whole point and then people will come I, I think that's beautiful what you just said is beautiful because then it not only connects us to the events and the music of then but the people of then like they were people too so when we can put ourselves in their shoes a little bit or we can bring the audience and they can have this experience then they've experienced something new our culture gets richer at the same time yes. by learning from them and, and so I think that's fantastic so Oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to, because we had talked a little bit um, a, a couple weeks ago about like this question of historically informed performance versus authenticity. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I, I do think that this is a really, really important thing to make people aware of is that there's really no way to ever recreate something that would be authentic to how it was performed 600 years ago. 
Right. Um, and I don't think we would want to, quite frankly, because in order to recreate those exact, you know, specifications, those ex that exact environment, you know, you're, you're talking about all the things that, that we're trying to dismantle at this moment, right? You know, <laughs> racist or sexist or, you know, patriarchal, what, whatever it is, right? Homophobic, you know, anti, you know, yeah. Jewish, whatever, you know, all the things that are built into that society, which we don't need, or, you know, that you can take boys and kind of <laughs> cloister them away and whap, whap them on the knuckles if they don't speak their Latin correctly. Right. We wouldn't want to recreate that. Right. But I do think that there is something to be said about I mean, all the information that we collect and all everything that we add into the, the pot and kind of mix it together presents, as I say, this multifaceted performance. And then what it does, interestingly enough, is it creates a new authenticity. It is authentic to us here and, and now, right? And the only way that that happens is if there's a conversation. It cannot be shut off. It can't be you know, right. enclosed, it's got to be shared. And that's, and that's how you create that real, that real experience of the music. And I think that's really important. I, a lot of people don't understand that because they're like, oh, you know, oh, I'm not doing it right. You know, or someone yelled at me once because I, I didn't know what the instruments were, or I wasn't singing with a timbre they thought I should sing with. It's like, yeah. no, 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 no. Don't shut people off. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome <Yeah>. them in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I yes. think like, even, even just so, uh, Sound of Ages, the choir that I conducted, uh, we did ACDA Western Division just in March, and we did Dufay's Nupe Rosado Flores. Fantastic. And we had the two tenor lines with sack butts from BYU's Early Music Instrument Archive, and trombone players play them from the balcony. It was incredible. But I'm like, but as I was planning, I was like, well, I heard this one choir use it, but is that the most authentic? And I, I struggled with it for like a yeah. week of like, okay, well, what's the most historically accurate? Is it was yeah. this or did or did they sing it? Or was it organ or what did they do? And I just paralyzed myself. But then I was yeah. like, well, this recording's the coolest and they seem to know what they're talking about. So I'm just gonna do that for now. Because I'm too scared and the deadline's tomorrow. <laughs> I'm kinda curious, what um what recording did you uh listen to? Um it was the um oh let me pull you it remember? up really quick. Um I'll, I'll have to send it to you. I can't remember, but it's uh, the cover is red and it has a like it has like a has like a um, geometric shape on it. Yeah, a drivium. Oh my gosh, they're amazing. Yeah. Okay. That that whole album is fantastic. Beautiful, beautiful recording. So what I love about them, first of all, they, I love their their performances. They're not as um, um, excitable <laughs> as I want them to be. I want them to be a little bit more like in your face, yeah. um, as I really believe in like kind of full singing, yeah. full body singing, really passionate singing. I agree. But they're they're beautifully done, beautifully made recordings, and they do something very interesting. So, not all of the music um, of Dufay's era was um, not every part would have been texted at any one time. Sure. In fact, the question of where the text goes is really challenging yeah. um, because often you would see like the top line, um, the top voice would have all of the text. Mm. The second line might have some of the text, or maybe it's in a different place in the in the score than you might. Because remember, they didn't write these in score; they wrote these in separate parts, right? It's so perfect. you'd see, yep, a part book. Um, well, actually, not even a part book, but like a choir, what we call choir book format. So, yeah. on the um, left side of the, the, you know, you have a book and it has an opening, right? So when you open yeah. the book, there's like a seam down the middle, and on the on the left side of the page, you'd have like the highest voice and maybe that one of the tenors. On the other side, you'd see the 
second highest voice on the top. So it's called the recto side, the right side. Yeah. And then below that might be another tenor, maybe a what, what, contra tenor, right? You know, so all these yeah. other parts might be there, right? So you're not looking at anyone else's part. So the text might be kind of all over the place. And not only that, but the tenor parts might just be written out and they might've just written it, oh, I don't know, one time, but then written in a little bit of instruction that says, the second time you play this through, go twice as fast. Yeah. Oh yeah, and the third time, try not to do it twice as fast. Do it like one third as fast. <laughs> oh, and then the last time, I want you to go two times the second time you did it, right? And make everything, every other note like faster, right? And this is what happens in Newburgh's Arm Floris. It's really, it's, it's totally constructed on these crazy ratios, but yeah. it's not. There's no text. There's right. no text there to be sung. So the question is, well, if there's no text there to be sung, should we sing it or should we play it? Yeah. Quadrivium says play it. In yeah. fact, they say play it uh, of all the parts where there isn't text. Like if there's a long melisma, they'll yeah. often drop the voices out and have an instrument start to right. play they, And they do that in that piece. There's this part. Yes. And it's like, and it's amazing and it's beautiful, yeah, beautiful and that may have been the way that they did it um and, and this is really uh, kind of compelling too because um it also kind of begs the question of like who's singing how many are singing is it a choir um this that particular piece was for the dedication is i think you know this right that it was the dedication of the duomo the cathedral in the center right. of florence and you it's still there today beautiful dome um, built by Brunelleschi, who is a famous architect. I mean, this is when they dedicated that right. part of the, the, the cathedral. Um, the tower was de designed by Giotto, a very famous yeah. Florentine artist. I mean, just like everything about it, it's just amazing. Yeah. And um, and the, the theory goes is that the um, motet was built on the same proportions as the cathedral was built, which is the symbolically after the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's yeah. temple. It may not be. I don't know. It's, there's some interesting questions about the proportions of the cathedral or not. But the question is, if it was performed in the cathedral for the duke and for the pope who was there and yeah. for all these really important people, did they have a choir that sang? I mean, like only five voices or maybe three voices and a couple of sack butts is not going to be terribly loud there. Right. And even then, did they did the Pope understand? He probably heard his name, by the way, you know, like halfway through. You hear his name, you genius, in the middle of the piece. But he may not have even recognized the, the crazy proportions of that piece because maybe the singers did and obviously Dufay did. But it's like you don't really – not really audible so like there's some kind of all these different layers of like what's going on in that piece but i could i love that idea that like at some point he, the eugenius is the pope is kind of like sitting there going oh how long is the look at his watch you know how long is this motet's gonna go on and suddenly he hears eugenius he's like oh wait wait pay attention <laughs> that's me <laughs> yeah that's amazing <laughs> I, it's just and it's that's one of the most glorious pieces of yep. music i've ever heard I, and it still astounds me i look at it I know I've analyzed it. I know I've looked at it again and again and again. Every time I look at it, I discover something new about it. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty incredible. I'm, kudos to you guys for doing it. Yeah, it was That's really fun. Crazy. We just put it up on YouTube today. And so maybe I'll send you a link and you can, we, we don't, I'm not sure if we'll add up to or live up to quite to Quadrivium, but, <laughs> but I have some pretty killer singers. And so it was, it was a real, and we were, 
the first performance of the day. It was like 7.30 in the morning when we warmed up. Our performance was at 8. And so it's like ah. the sun was just coming in through the stained glass. It was So it was a pretty cool experience, though. Fantastic. If you want to hear another, a, a more um, robust, if I may, performance of it, um, you should check out Huelgas Ensemble. Um, Paul von Navel, um, this probably, I, I want to say in like the 90s, we recorded this. And um, he does some really adventurous things. But boy, when those trombones come in, you know, whatever the brass instrument he has, it's just like, whoa, like that's so amazing. That's cool. Yeah, I'm definitely going to do some research on the Huelgas Ensemble. I Huelgas, yes. Belgian. Cool. Yeah, so, yeah, very, very cool. Do another question about, and, and we've kind of touched on it and kind of hinted at it, but not, and not just Dufai, but what, it musically and maybe non-musically what are some things that you think are still particularly relevant to today's choral art and life that we have that are kind of man made manifest in those composers of back then yeah i that's a, a, actually a very very good question because um it, it we do kind of struggle at times like with what our heritage is like and, and you can in fact you can get into really dangerous territory pretty quick um uh, you know if you say well we're singing it because it's our heritage which is obviously right. exclusive and you don't want to you don't want to go that way and a lot of people say well it's not relevant you know who who cares about the middle ages in fact you'll see that you know it, it's hard to fit in the middle ages at, at all yeah. in um music history courses or you know general right. history courses right i mean i think i think it's because it's because it's ever expanding i mean i know i do right you know i have a yeah. course i have to teach from um technically from the renaissance so dufi gets in there but I actually I put, in stuff, I put in earlier stuff too. Don't tell anyone. Um, but um, but you know, choral music from the beginnings of polyphony all the way through today. And so imagine, you know, this 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 semester is 1900 to today, which is 120 years of really complicated, crazy, hard music. And I'm struggling. I I pick too much stuff all the time. Over ambitious, and I I want to share so much. But you say, well, what, you know, what, what, what's the connection? Well, I think that the most important thing is to remember um, that we are constantly exploring kind of, kind of like at three levels, right? What, what were, what does the composer think? You know, what was the composer doing? What, how do they, they create this music? And then we have this sort of interesting layer of, well, what do we as performers deal do with this music right I mean, we, we obviously we can study it and we can kind of take it apart and see all of its mechanics sometimes we look at it and it's very beautiful right there's a lot of music that's like kind of like eye music right or or that we when you kind of uncover the structure of it you kind of say oh yeah i, I see exactly what's going on here um you know we mentioned this you know that the proportions in nuperos are on florist but all of the music particularly from the 14th and 15th century um is really designed around um very careful structural planning right. and once you see it it's like impossible to ignore right um, and but you might not necessarily hear it and that's what's really yeah. fascinating like unless you really have been pointed out oh yeah here's what's happening you might not you might go by and you'd never even yep yeah zoom that's zoom cool. zoom <laughs> right past you right so and then there's like kind of this third layer. This is what 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 are the people who are listening hearing, mm. and um and that actually is sometimes is a bit of a hard sell, especially if the audience doesn't isn't familiar with the repertoire, right? So yeah. if if you did a concert of all Dufay, 
or you know or even even crazier like all like anonymous 14th century italian songs you know ballada and and you know madrigals and things like that after a while their eyes will glaze over right exactly it, they just will but the same way of any program right you know imagine if you did okay we're all going to do all oh i don't know webern right you know and you kind of say okay mm, i love webern but i gotta get me some you know something else going on for a while yeah. Something maybe not pianissimo, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Sing something loud. So the the question is, is you know, how does it kind of fit into this larger um, story of 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 our you know kind of like what what it is that we want to construct? And I think that um, that early music can do some really really cool things that maybe other music doesn't, right? In its um, kind of ability to uh, create things of a very very fine detail that um, work at these really really micro levels that you know something big and kind of bombastic maybe doesn't do right you know Berlioz is awesome but maybe that's not getting the subtlety that we necessarily want for this particular moment in this particular place so I think that there's some room there I mean I I, I think it is kind of akin to um, thinking of like the, the different art movements and thinking of you know kind of these little miniatures carved out of box when you open up a, a, a you know very very small um orb and find inside like the entire crucifixion for instance yeah. in, inside carved inside as opposed to like a giant um uh, canvas that's like the coronation of napoleon right? right and you think about like that on this massive massive scale it, yeah. you, you there, there's room for both of those so i really um they, all one thing all the time makes someone pretty pretty boring right. um so i think that there is something to be said for really pursuing um this you know earlier repertoire and there's just so much to be uncovered right. it's not for every choir and this is, is something that i find is pretty challenging is the question of well what's choral music right so i'm i teach in a choral conducting department and my courses are called choral literature so the question is well what is a choir yeah we could ask that by the way of today Right. Mm -hmm. You know, do we call room full of teeth a choir? They don't. Um, they call themselves a band. Right. Or, you know, an ensemble of some sort. So, you know, even if maybe Guillaume de Machaut was not sung by a 40 voiced choir, you right. know, what does that ensemble actually entail? Is it all vocal? It, you know, is it not? You know, what what do we do with this sort of um, right. thing? I mean, Palestrina's choir probably wasn't all that big either. So exactly. you, you, you've got to make your balance and checks and checks and balances somewhere along the way. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think, but I think there's room for it. And I think there's like a really good um, market that, that says that, you know, this isn't necessarily inaccessible. Um, yeah. Some of it's hard and some of it's really challenging. As I say, I still uncover things about Newburgh's <laughs> Arm Flores every day, yeah. but not everything is, is so challenging that it can't be accessible to a, a modern ensemble. Yeah, and I think what you said is, and I think, well, yeah, a lot of what, everything you said is things that resonate with me, but I think some things in particular that are important, I think, because, again, I just put myself back in, when I was at BYU-Idaho doing my undergrad, and I was just, you know, I just picture myself in music theory class, we're, we're doing dictations, and we each have a portion of the board, and then we go to our music lit class and we're like, okay, wait, who is this guy again? And who is this? And what is this? Where the, and it, it all just seems like, can we just sing my favorite song? I just want to get on stage and sing my favorite song. But then there comes a point where we start to think of, well, that idea of selling it mm -hmm. because I went into it because I had this emotional connection to the music of some kind. And 
of DuFi, which I would never have had unless I was in a graduate level course. But we can help facilitate those kinds of experiences for our singers and our audience members to show them that, like we mentioned before, that society and people, while we may have come a long way, are not really that different. <laughs> we, we need to eat, we need to sleep, we want to make connections, we seek to, to have a, a relationship with a higher power of some kind in various ways, and we want family and community, and so how do we connect, use those things to connect the things that you say are really difficult because it, it is hard and it is a lot on the ears and what we yeah. don't understand, we don't like. So it's like. One of the things I think that we, we are in a perfect position right now to really do um, our audiences a big favor, which yeah. is that we could make this much more accessible. Yeah. Um, I think we, we've, we're, I, I'm saying we because I, you know, I'm assuming you know, kind of like a, a sort of a musical community here. But I think that the expectation, at least in uh, you know 21st century America, which is kind of based upon Western European culture, is that concerts are you go to the concert hall, you wear your nice clothes, and you sit quietly in a seat, and you watch, you know, the black you know, gaping holes moving up in front of you right. uh, until it's done and then you leave, right? And that's and that's the model that we have. Right. But we could do so much more. I think that there are some people who are taking advantage of um, media in really interesting ways. If you right. go um, go on YouTube sometime and look up uh, the wonderful um, things that people are creating with um, some really, really complex works on the late 14th century, I'm thinking particularly of Baude Cordier. So uh, the first name is B-A-U-D-E. Last name is Cordier, C-O-R-D-I-E-R. -E um, both Cordier wrote two pieces that are, are in, in a really elaborate graphic notation uh, from the early decades of the 15th century. So one is called Tout uh, par compas, which is about um, about a compass, right? So wow. going, find, circling around and around and around. And so it's written actually in a circle. Wow. And another one is called um, uh, Belle Bon Sage, which is a, a love song. So it's actually written in the shape of a heart. Oh, yeah. And th th that's pretty, when you Google sometimes early manuscripts that one shows up that shows up right because it's so remarkable it's like whoa what's this, this these are so actually incredibly complex there these are some of the most uh, these are even more challenging than new Rosorum florist but by the way because the notation is written in this really complex avant-garde um, way right um for the time period it was like kind of the most experimental notation you could you could think of someone has put together a recording in which you can follow along in the manuscript while you are hearing the music. Wow, that's cool. And, and I don't know who, who has time for this, but somebody <laughs> does. And it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. And it's very beautifully performed as well. Yeah. And as a consequence, when you're following along, you can kind of say, ooh, this really hard thing, which is really esoteric and takes like somebody who's really, really brainy and probably even smarter than I am to figure out. Right. <laughs> you can follow along and feel like you're part of it, right? Yeah. You feel like you have an inside edge on what's going on. Yeah. So why not, you know, why not share what the music looks like? You know, we don't have to rely on just, a, again, a black folder, which we hide the music from the audience. Let's have them participate in it. And since the music is so, so beautifully written, sometimes really, you know, like 
kind of messy, <laughs> right? Exactly. But you see all the handwriting and you kind of could follow along. Right. Uh, if there are lots of text, you could you know, you could project the text. I'm almost thinking like you, this is a multimedia yeah. um, opportunity for us, especially now where we're in a position where everybody's learning right now how to really like put everything on the internet and everything on a video why not let's do it now while we can uh, we where we're uh, we're obliged to do this where we can't meet in the concert halls like we used to and really make this happen so follow along in the manuscripts maybe follow on in the music have the text up maybe show i don't know pictures of you know clothing or art or of architecture of the time like there's just so many things that people could start kind of par start participating in that isn't necessarily also it's not a lecture either mm -hmm. i mean you can tell I talk, right? Yeah, yeah. I could talk at the ear off an audience and they're not going to enjoy that. They want to hear the music. So yeah. let's have something where you say, okay, we're going to put up on a screen, you know, that you can watch while you're listening to all of these things going on. And people are used to it. They want to see that. Yeah. They are used to the multimedia. Absolutely. And now, and so, yeah, and do it now. But then when, when we go back to live performances, we've created a new product basically i mean yeah. i can get into business theory all, all <laughs> and i'm an entrepreneur in my head too and so i'm just like wait we had to change our product and our customers are changing you know kind of thing but but I, I really loved what you said of invite them in to the process to their they exactly they're part of it and well and, and yes my end Right. And it's, it's part of the buy-in. And it's like, this doesn't need to be a secret society that only intelligentsia can, can get to. And, and people can quibble, right? They, I think right. that um, there, there's a, 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 something from the 14th century itself, which is like, you know, well, who, who listened to this music? And there's kind of arguments on both sides. But I think the consensus is it was probably really, really, really smart people like, you know, university, you know, students right. who did this stuff on their free time, right? They sang in the, you know, the university churches or, you know, uh, in Paris, right? They sang at yeah. Notre Dame, right? Yeah. But in their free time, they were experimenting with all of these things and kind of having fun putting together motets. So yeah, they were probably pretty well educated, but you know, they had an inside track, right? So let's give people an inside track so they feel like they that they're a part of it too and they can start figuring it out yeah. for themselves. Because now in, in the modern world, the, there's so much we're trying to get rid of classes. And we have the means to do it more of like anybody can go and be anything if, if and they might not know the way and like my experience i would never have pictured myself starting a group of my own let alone a group that kind of specializes in early-ish music and it's very um, kind of loose terms but, but again, <laughs> writ large <laughs> exactly but because i had such an incredible experience with it but who would have my my masters when I got to BYU my I was much more of a composer at heart I almost went to film school for film composition mm -hmm. and was much more in that kind of mindset but choir was my instrument and I loved edu like teaching and being in front of an ensemble and so my professors took a chance on me and like I would never have pegged me to be an early music person. So we we don't know who in the audience or who in our ensembles or who in our classrooms are going to turn out to be, well, just like you with your professor, you, who would have guessed that you would be a really influential, like professor at this large <laughs> university 
with such great influence and the passion that you have at that time, right? We don't know. So our job is just to kind of do what we can with what we have and to as many people as possible and help them have an experience. So absolutely. And you know, there's so much music out there. I it's, um, uh, oh gosh, this is a gazillion years ago now, probably about 15 years ago. Um, I was part of a, a panel on like the future of early music, right? So in so the early music, there was there was actually a movement, right? There was this kind of early music revival. It started in the 60s, but really kind of came to its apex in the late, late 80s and early 90s. And um, and so I think there was kind of this sense that there was a waning away from you know historically informed performance, or maybe we we done it all and no one needs to do it anymore. Yeah. And um, and someone said, yeah, it's like you know you, you're afraid you're going to pull the brick out of the wall and the whole thing's just going to like, I'm going to do this one last piece and everything's going to, you know, crashing around us. But it is so apparent that there is way, way, way more that could be done that can be done. Um, and that doesn't necessarily, I'm not saying we have to throw out, you know, anything else like, Hey, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Mozart Requiem, just like anyone, but I have to question, you know, just how many more performances one needs to do in one's lifetime in, in order to kind of like, you know, have a fulfilling music career. So why not, in addition to right. a performance of the Mozart Requiem, also then take a stab at something that is, um, you know, just just out there and maybe is a little bit different and would be would provide a challenge to yourself and to your singers and to your audience too, and and yeah. and might discover something, yeah, something anew that's just brilliant. Yeah. Um, and and, and might send someone off on a path into well, you know musicology land <laughs> like i did <laughs> which is fantastic well <laughs> well thank you we i we're both kind of talkers too because i am as well so i could <laughs> go on for hours and hours but it's late there and and we can go on um but i would love to i'll, I'll maybe reach out in a couple months or something or six months or who knows i don't know how long how long I will have projected out of this sure podcast, how many interviews and stuff but I would love to have you on again sometime in the future absolutely and you know I promised you that I would I would write up a, a playlist for you and I've done it but I haven't sent it to you so um uh, I'm gonna send you a playlist because um it would it's really fun to kind of go through and just say hey there's this you, you want to hear something experimental you want to hear something really traditional you want to hear something really kind of small I have all sorts of ideas about oh, things amazing. and it's all Dufy and it's all awesome so um I will definitely be sending that your way well, thank you and I'm going to post that on our on our choir's website of Fantastic. the blog of each episode. I have some resources. I'll, you've given me so many resources I'll put on there and it's going to be great. Now, Dufay is often regarded as one of the key composers for transitioning the Western world from West, uh, medieval music into the Renaissance. In one of my, in my music in the Renaissance class, uh, during my master's degree, our tests were three hours long, and they were two questions. For example, one question was, how does 
and I can't remember now, but how does such and such piece by Dufay represent the transition between the medieval and the Renaissance time period? And our professor was like, I highly recommend you take the full hour and a half. And so I wrote and wrote and wrote handwritten test. And, you know, it was like a 10 page paper just going off about some piece of music by Dufay and how it was transitional. And I could bore you to death about how that, you know, about the details of that, but I won't do that, but I'll explain a couple of key elements. He really started to, if you take a 10,000-foot approach view, uh, 10,000-foot view approach to medieval music versus Renaissance, one of the key ingredients would be... um, kind of organization. And without getting into specifics, if you just go off what you hear, Renaissance music sounds more organized and formal. There's a stronger sense of meter. There's a clearer sense of rhythm. There's clearer moments of text um, kind of perception. So... Dufay's music, you know, early Dufay is really in that organized chaos medieval style with isorhythmic motets and dense polyphony and all those things. And his later music is much, sounds much more like the Renaissance. He was kind of hailed as a genius in his time and had a lot of connections with a lot of high-profile composers all over Italy and France and also even some uh, English composers. And he was the first composer to be known as a cosmopolitan. He's unusually well-traveled for that time especially. He kind of moved... He moved several times back and forth as well between Savoie and his appointment in the papal chapel because of the political unrest. And so this this was super fascinating to me too. He ended up working for two different patrons who were on opposite sides of the political fence. So it would be like if Donald Trump and Joe Biden had both hired him to be their composer, you know? <laughs> Like, and he knew which way the political winds were shifting and was able to, he had an uncanny ability to kind of foresee things that were going to happen in the future. And he was really a prudent guy. So I found that super interesting. His famous, most famous piece, Nupe Rosarum Flores, was composed for the dedication of the Cathedral Dome in Florence. And this led to more appointments and things. So even though he was hailed as probably the most gifted composer in his lifetime. Once you get about 25 years after his death, his music was essentially not performed anymore, which is kind of sad, and I found that kind of depressing. But it made a resurgence, again, in this early music movement that happened about a generation before us. So, Dufay... If you take a look at 
for example, a beginning piece, or you know what I would qualify as a beginning piece, is Ave Regina Celorum. And it's a three-part piece, uh, kind of originally for alto, tenor, and bass ranges-ish in modern kind of voicings. It's not rhythmically complex compared to a lot of his other works. This is a great way to introduce, well, maybe not to introduce, but to teach the tuning of open fifths. There's a lot of great moments you could pick out of this to serve as a warm-up. And getting two singers up to the front, have them sing a perfect fifth, or if you have a really good singer that you could sing with to demonstrate, and just have the students raise their hand when the fifth is perfectly in tune, and when the fifth is not in tune, put their hand down and see how the students react. And then, you know, have them do it together, like pick a partner, go into the hallway or out out the doors or something or into a practice room and sing a perfect fifth together. See if you can hear when it locks together. Here's do, here's so, or here's one, here's five, or whatever method you choose. And I think it could be really cool for introducing that, that open sonority that really serves as the building block for the rest of Western musical history. The ranges are slightly wider than a lot of young singers could probably navigate, but if you moved it up a step or two, it would probably work, I think. You'd have to make maybe some adjustments with, if you, if you have, you know, cambiata voices in the, the male voice department, you know, you, you might have to change around with the starting pitch, um... But there's a lot of homophonic sections that would, again, are great for teaching that ear training and could serve as a really cool, um, diverse piece on your program because not much music from this long ago is performed regularly. An intermediate piece, I would say, is Ave Maristella, which is soprano alto bass, baritone-ish, soprano alto baritone, S-A-B. Now there's a great recording of this piece by the Eric Whitaker singers on their singer on their single The Chelsea Carol. I'll post a link to that um, on the blog, soundofageschoir.com. <clears throat> this piece is so beautiful. It's intermixed with in kind of a strophic form with verses of chant. Um and it's modal. You could sing in the mode for a warm-up to kind of get their ears tuned into that. It's slightly more difficult than the previous piece, um, than uh, Ave Regina Celorum, uh, just in terms of its rhythmic complexity. I wouldn't call it rhythmically complex, but it's not as straightforward. And the ranges for the middle and lower voice are actually a little bit narrower than Ave Regina Celorum. So the lowest voice I would voice maybe as a tenor two voice in the men's section as opposed to bass baritone. It's it's kinda it gets kinda high. Or you could have it switch off. You could find moments where you could give it to the tenor twos and then have the baritone sing it and kind of have them switch back and forth or something. And it kind of deludes the sense of meter, which 
again, is all relative because of the metric oh, paradigm that they had back then. But, oh, it's so beautiful and ethereal and it sounds really holy and magical. I love this piece. So go check out that recording. Um, and for an advanced piece, I would say none other than Nupe Rosarum Flores. It's SATB-ish. SATB-ish. Um, now, as was mentioned in the interview with Dr. Buff, there's moments where, you know, the text cuts out. Was that performed by an instrument? Or was that continuation of the word previous? We don't really know. And there's lots of different you know, interpretations of that. And, but this piece is a beast. It is an edifice. If you think of Il Duomo in Florence, for any of you who have been to Florence and you come in and you see the skyline and you see that huge dome, it's just amazing. There's no other word for it other than, you know, not in the slang version, but truly awesome. And this piece struck me the same way. This is the piece that I was listening to. If any of you want to hear my story or haven't have recently joined and didn't hear episode one where I tell my story, I was listening in class to Dufay, and this is the piece that I was listening to that literally changed my life and is what sparked the starting of Sound of Ages and therefore started this podcast and got me into teaching my high school and junior high students early music more. This is the piece. And it is amazing. I won't go on and on about it because Dr. Buff and I talked about it uh, a little bit in that interview, but the ranges are really odd for a contemporary ensemble. The meter is really complex and kind of convoluted at times. But if you study the score and listen to a recording, um, I'll also post Sound of Ages recording from our ACDA performance in last March of 2020 uh, on the website, uh, along with a PDF of my own performance edition. Um, if you don't end up performing this piece anytime, that's okay. I just hope you can listen to it and feel the architectural edifice that it is with its isorhythmic motet structure and comparing it with, you know, the the building itself. So that would be an advanced piece. And his mass movements are also similar in in their complexity that I would classify as advanced as well. So if you're looking for something by Dufay that's more advanced, um, that's where I would start. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the show today. Hopefully you feel a little less intimidated by early music. And if not, hopefully you have some tools to become so. At least by grabbing onto one of the many things that Dr. Buff and I discussed. And hopefully you learned something from our composer profile on Guillaume Dufayi. Be sure to like and subscribe on all of our platforms. Give us a five-star rating, and we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday. <laughs>